welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issue proclamations. Your guides to this journey, my co-host Phil Clyde, author of the novel Missionaries. Me, Jacob Siegel, the slumming angel, the knocker off of tall hats. May you continue to be a person. And our guest today, the first professional musician we've ever had on Manifesto, a podcast, is none other than Ethan Iverson. So we we decided to start at the the top of the game. Uh, Ethan, as many of you will know, is a founding member of uh, the Bad Plus, a jazz trio that was, uh, I think the way... I would put it as popular, influential, and uh, maybe even somewhat controversial. Everything you want to be if you're a jazz trio these days. Uh, Ethan ventured out on his own in 2017. Earlier this year, he recorded a record with the memorable title Bud Powell in the 21st Century. And he has another record coming out in February on Blue Note called Every Note is True. And on top of all that, um, he's really like a, a one-man publishing house over at his website, uh, blog, archive, do the math uh, that I highly recommend everybody check out. He writes about music. He, uh, he writes about crime fiction. He does these great long-form interviews. Um, it's an incredible resource. And Ethan, we are, we're really glad to have you here. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Always happy to talk about some jazz to anybody. (laughs) Great. And I should note that the way we arrived at today's manifesto, which is Wynton Marsalis' 1988 essay, What Jazz Is and Isn't, which was originally published in the New York Times, is Ethan actually tweeted out to his followers, you know, what should I talk about? What's a jazz manifesto? And this came back uh, from... Jessica Webster, so thank you, Jessica. Uh, but some other honorable mentions: um, the always insightful uh, Twitter luminary slash weirdo Spotted Toad, who recommended Stanley Crouch's um, liner notes to Black Codes, which is my my old favorite Wynton Marsalis record. And then there was some other great stuff. I'm I'm forgetting some of it now, but um, Bill Evans something, Bill Evans liner notes to something. And somebody had the great idea that we should do uh, at some point, Phil, compare Philip Larkin's jazz writing to Eric Hobsbawm. I I didn't even know that Hobsbawm had. So apparently Hobsbawm had a jazz column in one of the British papers and to compare those two. So there was a lot of great stuff. Thank you. Um, but Ethan, out of all of the possibilities, all the great suggestions, why the Wynton Marsalis essay? I don't know a whole lot about manifestos, but I kind of like if I'm choosing into topics, take like a very like a classic example. And there were some really cool examples in there. Uh, some of them were purely musical. You know, I guess you, at some point you could say anything is a manifesto. Like I woke up today and took a breath and that's my manifesto <laughs> for life. But Wynton Marsalis 
actually writing in the New York Times what jazz is and what it isn't is clearly a manifesto as far as I understand it. And it's also a, a topic that is still rife for jazz today. And he still has it on its on his website. You don't need to go to the New York Times to look it up. It's on the Wynton Marcellus website, which I take to mean that he still stands by it. He, this is a long time ago now. He was a young man, but it's still up there. And I don't think he's changed his mind about anything he's saying in this piece. So if you're in, in jazz, if you're a jazz insider and you've been around long enough, you may recall the 80s as... Uh, the time of the jazz wars, you know, 80s into the 90s. And on one side would be Winton and you mentioned Stanley Crouch. Uh, forever, their names will be interlinked in this conversation. Stanley was the great writer. Winton was the great trumpet player and composer. And they tried to pull off a coup. And uh, I got to know Stanley pretty well. Uh, he was my friend. And I actually ended up writing the obituary for Stanley Crouch in the, at, at NPR. And I know Winton, I can't say I know him well, but I've interviewed him. And he invited me one time to speak at, a, at the Jazz Congress on the topic of jazz and race. And it ended up being just the two of us. I thought it was going to be maybe like a dozen people. <laughs> and I'd, get, I'd say one uh, self-deprecating line in there. But instead, I, you know, I just had to hold my feet to the fire there uh, with Winton. And, but it, it went well. And... I am in sympathy with Winton. A lot of my community doesn't see it that way. Uh, to some extent, I could say my—I could say part of my writing um, online has been as an apologist for Winton and for Stanley both. And uh, some people like to say the jazz wars are over, like it's all d dead and gone. But I don't know. I think there's still a lot of work to be done processing that moment. And I figured since it's such a clear manifesto, let's jump in and see if uh, see if what we can still learn from that old essay today. Yeah, I think it's a perfect choice. Um, first of all, you know, this podcast is a bit of a Stanley Crouch Appreciation Society. Um, <laughs> I interned for Stanley as a high school student. Oh, wow. And um, had deep, deep affection for the guy. Um you know, I lost touch with him, unfortunately, many years prior to his death, but I really admired and respected Stanley, and he was incredibly generous to me, and I learned a great deal from his writing and from his, his cast of mind, and every time I use the word protean, I owe that, that's a crouch word, that's the crouch word, you know, <laughs> protean. We had uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams on, I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with his work, he's an excellent writer. And we had him on to talk about Albert Murray's, uh, the Omni Americans, Thomas. His influence you can Stanley see in here, guy. yeah. So, mm -hmm. so Stanley is linked to Winton, as Ethan was saying, in part um, for everything that Stanley imparted, all the Crouchisms. But I think he was also, it would be fair to say, the link between Winton Marsalis and Albert Murray, and uh, you know. Crouch was really the, the great acolyte of Murray's. And just very briefly, to give listeners a sense of the jazz wars that Ethan's talking about, I think you could say that on one side, there were people who believed in the formal tradition of jazz, 
rooted in blues and swing and who not only resisted the uh, excursions into fusion, most famously like the Miles Davis, Bitches Bruce stuff, but also like West Coast, some of the cool jazz and all all manners of, you know, what Marxist would call deviationist tendencies they rejected <laughs> and they in so rejecting them and in so insisting on a formal basis to jazz that was not a matter of feeling or merely of mood or of style, but was in fact a matter of like particular harmonic patterns and a particular way of playing music. They were by their critics, they were, and this is Winton and Crouch on this side, they were cast as not just purists, but like stodgy stiflers of innovation and, and like the institutionalists. And then on the other side were the people who saw themselves as being creative and generative and who wanted to be able to bring in pop or, or rock or whatever, um, and so that's the background to this piece. Is that a kind of fair description, Ethan? Absolutely. I mean, it's as I'm listening to you talk, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying, but also I am aware of how hard it is to sort of unpack this smoothly because when I look at what Winton's writing there in the manifesto, he's, he's fighting a multi-front battle. And on one side, I mean, he's got multiple sides. And probably, you know, at, at, some, at some point during this podcast, I want to use the phrase mission creep. Because I know you're both ex-soldiers, and I, and I love that. <laughs> that. That's a helpful phrase to me. When you set out to do one thing, and then you end up in the weeds doing this other thing, and you lose sight of your primary objective, Right. So in this manifesto, uh, Winton begins by talking about uh, black music. Yeah. And that's the first thing I think it gets lost a lot of time by the critics is what, what is like the primary mission here was just to in, basically insert some blackness into an incredibly white jazz discourse. The critical establishment in jazz, whatever that is, you know, during the time that all the great jazz records were made and stuff was really um, the critics weren't musicians and they were white cats. And Mm -hmm. they sort of set up uh, a canon that the musicians didn't agree with. So if you talk to the, any of the actual great black jazz musicians, they're still around some of them, but who were there in the glory days, none of them read an article in a jazz magazine because they knew it wasn't any good. I was playing with Albert Tootie Heath, great drummer of the, of the Heath brothers, one of three incredible brothers from the south side of Philadelphia, um, three of the greatest musicians in American history. Tootie's the younger brother, the funniest and uh, he had just landed on the cover of Jazz Times. And we were playing the Village Vanguard, and he came in. 
he's always a joker. He came in uh, showing his uh, the cover of the magazine and and saying how he was the greatest person in the world or something like that. But self-deprecating, but making uh, still also enjoying the fact he was for the first time ever at seventy something was on the cover of a jazz magazine. And I asked him, "Oh, Tootie, what did you think of the article?" And he replied with a straight face, "Oh, I didn't read it." <laughs> I never read an article in one of these magazines. So the first thing Winton is trying to do, right at the top, he's trying to establish some basic, you know, dominance hierarchy. Like this is this, this is something about black music is here, and you know, okay, um, we got to me... sort of establish the intellectual properties of this music correctly. Let me uh, let me just read that opening because it'll okay. I think it'll set it up. <clears throat> My generation finds itself wedged between two opposing traditions. One is the tradition we know in such wonderful detail from the enormous recorded legacy that tells anyone who will listen that jazz broke the rules of European conventions and created rules of its own that were so specific, so thorough, and so demanding that a great art resulted. This art has had such universal appeal and application to the expression of modern life that it has changed the conventions of American music as well as those of the world at large. The other tradition which was born early and stubbornly refuses to die despite all the evidence to the contrary, regards jazz merely as a product of noble savages, music produced by the untutor, by untutored, unbuttoned semi-literates for whom jazz history does not exist. This myth was invented by early jazz writers, who, in attempting to escape their American prejudices, turned out a whole world of new cliches based on the myth of the innate ability of early jazz musicians. Um something he blames on their lack of understanding of the mechanics of the music itself. Um, and there's a lot of echoes of Murray in there too, for sure. I mean, especially hearing it read aloud. I mean, I probably Stanley helped him write this. It sounds like Stanley to me. And it's a lot of it sounds, uh, there are a lot of, I mean, there are individual lines in it where I just thought like either Stanley wrote this or he's channeling Stanley. Yeah, exactly. We probably consulted Stanley. I'm not, I'm not questioning, uh, Winton's authorship exactly. I'm just sort of saying, but that it, that was a big influence. And Winton, if Winton was here, he'd be the first person to say, you know, I am Stanley's child on this topic in terms of writing it. Later on in the manifesto, he says he brings up Stanley's name and says it'll be so important to have uh, in the series we're doing program notes by Stanley Crouch to help yeah. explain right. music. So, but so okay. So he starts off saying he's talking about the noble savage trope, you know, and. I think in jazz, we we sort of grow up, if we grow up know, knowing jazz, we know that black people are smart. All jazz fans, I mean, we love John Coltrane. It's, it's sort of impossible to miss, right? But that doesn't mean in the real world, in the larger world, people like Stanley and Winton were, you know, they were in a lot of situations where they were cast as just the the brawn, shall we say, yeah. of the situation, as the muscle, as the the sort of uh, you know tuned into the ancestors, just sort of not right. you know not articulate, you know the sort of world. It's, it's very real, I think, 
Yeah, it's not that their music it. emerges from sort of study, understanding of the tradition in which they operate, a sophisticated understanding of the mechanics of music and <clears throat> and and the different sort of forms that are available to them, but rather some sort of like innate, pure expression of soul, right? Exactly. You know, and, uh, you know, so people who are angry at Winton, I think, sometimes forget that that's a that's a real trope in the world right you know uh i really admire the book by robin dg kelly about Thelonious monk the life and times of Thelonious monk it's a wonderful biography and it's one of the few major biographies written by a black author but, you know, even Kelly, in my view, kind of makes a mistake at one point in the book. And I, this is a very subtle touch here. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to come down on Kelly here, but it's relevant to this discussion. He sort of goes out of his way that, to say that Monk had the ability to play through Chopin at home. And he sort of makes the a kind of a, like to prove that Monk was such a an intellectual musician too or something. And right. the truth the truth of the matter is all the piano players played through Chopin. If you're a piano player, you played through the basic repertoire. Understanding European music, that's the, that's almost in the first line of this manifesto. Understanding European music is a given. It was always a given. Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong, just as well as any modern day jazz practitioner, you just understand the European tradition, which is, by the way, not that hard to understand. Some people like to be like, wow, it's, it's so hard. But every dumb white person learned it for years. It's some very basic language skills. But some, you know, if you're in that world dealing with black music, interfacing with like the white, uh, the gargantuan white society, you know, there might be these rough edges where, you know, you just get told, well, you play what you feel, you know, but, and we know you can't read music. That's a trope that's out there. It's hard to believe, but it is. But, you know, just last year, Ron Carter um, put on an Instagram po post, no one was ever harmed by learning to read music, something like that. And it's, it's sort of like, Ron, of, of course we know that. But so... I think the reason Ron is doing that is because he's been around hip hop. And what Winton does not make explicit in this manifesto is that he's actually very anti hip hop. And he's worried about um, what he perceives as an anti intellectual direction of that world as compared to the jazz greats and the trajectory of black music. So this would this this is what I I would call this kind of mission creep right here. So I'll use that word now because he's uh, he's he doesn't know it, but he's sort of gotten himself into a, a two front battle where he's dealing with, shall we say, the jazz critics and just trying to establish what the jazz is, and then now he's thinking about the rise of hip hop and uh, being troubled by what he perceives as a return of the of the noble savage trope. Right. And it's not know, just hip hop, right? Like, 
you know, I found a, a quote from him where he says, you know, I do not entertain and I will not entertain. I'm a musician. I studied the music and my music should be presented that way. I'm serious about what I'm doing. I will not play funk. I like funk, but I'm not a funk musicians. F- musician. Funk musicians don't pay the kind of dues that jazz musicians pay to the music. And and you see that in the first paragraph that I quoted where he talks about how, you know, jazz broke the, the rules of European conventions, but then created rules of its own that were so specific, so thorough, and so demanding that a great art resulted, right? And it's that that emphasis on, no, it's not just pure expression. It is the sort of, it's creating a new idiom, right? Um, and that idiom let's has make rules. The, let's make the, the racial dynamic of this explicit because it's yeah. in uh, any number of ways plays against type. Right, because what you have here is the black critical establishment, or you know, Winton's not exactly the critical establishment, but he is, as Ethan is saying, attempting to delineate and to insist on uh, a black idiomatic essence to jazz, which is, in this case, the nominally conservative, stodgy rule-bound institutional position is the black position here in conflict with or explicitly against a pre-existing and actually existing like white critical establishment of guys writing for downbeat or or wherever i don't know all the jazz magazines but of white writers in for whom um the like there is a resistance to this a, a a uh what they see as a kind of uh experimental perhaps or or creative or vanguard spirit which they don't see as being tied to somehow a denigration of the black uh black contribution to jazz they don't see it that way right but in fact what stanley and winton are saying is Yes, when you try and take the rules away, when you, when, and you know, I think, Ethan, it's interesting, you know, you're saying that um, the noble savage uh, myth still exists and, and it's like surprise, you know, that, that Winton is writing explicitly against it. I think a lot of the people that would have been directed at would have no problem at all recognizing that in the abstract, right? How, oh, this is pernicious. The idea of the noble savage is pernicious, but but would resist any attempt to see it applied to the way they were dealing with jazz as a critical form. Um, so well, like the, I wrote a, yeah. and I wrote a, a little bit of a manifesto myself at the top of the year against the latest Billie Holiday movie. Mm-hmm. I wrote it in The Nation and you know, which portrays Billie Holiday as a sensationalist figure, you know, addled by drugs and sex and, you know, was just sort of like, uh, but really understood the blues, you know. It, they didn't allow my headline, but I wanted the headline of my of a polemic to be, to be simply Billie Holiday technician <laughs> because she was an incredible technician who also gave tools, right. very important musical tools to all the people who followed her. Um, in fact, very few singers, except for probably only Louis, Louis Armstrong ahead of her, 
influenced so many of the what we consider classic jazz instrumentalists. Lester Young, his whole mythos stems from Billie Holiday. Thelonious Monk uh, stared at her picture. He, it was the one picture in his apartment. He stared at his picture, and that's, I think, in my opinion, how he got his sort of surreal, very esoteric versions of torch songs out of his piano. Miles Davis said that he figured out how to play ballads because of Billie Holiday. She was a real technical resource. And this lady, latest movie is just, a, once again, this retelling a very sort of uh, sensationalist tale, which is... She, she, she had a sad life, and therefore she was able to create powerful emotions when she sang, right? Right, which Rather is akin, than... to the, it's akin to the noble savage trope. You know, it's, yeah. it, although that, that trope is probably any artist, anywhere, anytime. People love that story. Yeah, they lived it. They lived it so they could tell. And there's some truth of that too. I don't want to take right. away the truth of that, but at the same time, you know what Winton's trying to say is uh, there's a lot of well. So he, he directly it, uh, addresses that in the in sort of Duke Ellington in the section on Duke Ellington and Louis okay. Armstrong. He says, you know, so he quotes Malraux, uh, um, Albert Murray. It's so funny. By the yeah, way. you Albert Murray and Ellison. Like you see the L. Well, you know the, Ma- the lineage. Yeah, Malraux was the the Murray. Those two. Yeah. Guy. yeah, yeah. He's uh, artist. The, the the lineage artist intellectual lineage of this piece. Artists do not stem from their childhoods, but from their conflict with the achievements of their predecessors. Not from their own formless world, but from the struggle with the form which others have imposed on life. So and then good. Duke man. Ellington and Louis Armstrong. He writes. Their work was much more than the result of talent forged by adverse social conditions. For too long, people have attributed Armstrong's spiritual depth and technical fluidity to the supposed fact that he didn't know anything about music, couldn't read music, played in the hollowed halls of prostitution, knife fights, and murder. But Armstrong grew up in in a New Orleans that demanded many levels of sophistication, right? And then, and after that, I'll read a, this is from Murray's Stomping the Blues. Um, where he's arguing the importance of the blues is not in social commentary, but in, quote, the attitude toward experience, the disposition to persevere that blues music at its best not only embodies, but stylizes, extends, elaborates, refines into art. The primary emphasis is placed upon aesthetics, not at ethics, right? Um, but the uh, aesthetic for, for Murray of the blues is almost the inverse of what has become the standard trope of the blues. So whereas now when you want to invoke the blues, it's some like desperate character who's kind of wallowing in despair for Murray, the whole point, and then for crouch after him, the whole point was that a kind of stoic is not right because you have to be able to like laugh at it a bit, you know, but a, a trans it's existential i mean this is where the Malraux comes in it's an existential right. triumph over the conditions through not only personal strength but the reclamation of a tradition as one's yeah. own you know and this I, is i, I, I got Go the quote from the omni americans if you want me to read it that i think you're um yeah yeah, read the, i mean yeah yeah this is murray from the omni americans Extemporizing in response to the exigencies of the situation in which he finds himself, he is confronting, acknowledging, and contending with the infernal absurdities and ever-impending frustrations inherent in the nature of all existence by playing with the possibilities that are also there. 
Thus does man the player become man the stylizer, and by the same token the humanizer of chaos. And thus does play become ritual, ceremony, and art. And thus also does the dance beat improvisation of experience in the blues idiom become survival technique, aesthetic equipment for living, and a central element in the dynamics of U.S. Negro lifestyle. It's a wonderful quote, and Murray is wonderful, and it's too long for this context, but his real manifesto in, in a musical sense is stomping the blues, a, mm -hmm. a, a book length exploration of the blues as a topic. And he, he talks about how, in my opinion, correctly, the blues is what you do when you feel down. It's also what you do when you feel up. You know, it has all these different textures and, um, that book was also controversial. It came out, I think, in the mid-70s, yeah. but white critics didn't like that book either. That was the, <laughs> a foretaste of the 80s and 90s jazz wars. For the, like, for, you know, for the first time, a notable black intellectual was getting into the mud with these guys. And yeah. he's saying, well, let me tell you actually how I, th how I think it goes. And it... it it ruffled a lot of feathers. Yeah. Some 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 are still ruffled to this day by stomping in the blues. But it's also, not also, but in my view, I would rather let Albert Murray or Wynton Marsalis or Stanley Crouch have the right of way for a while. <laughs> Give them the right of way. Then if after you thought about it for a minute, and you can make your own decisions. They're just books. They're just, you know, you can... As an artist, that's a different topic. What you do, you know, I'm a practitioner. I have to make decisions between me and my gods, essentially, in terms <laughs> of what what happens. And uh, as I say, I would rather, rather than getting offended for the that the for, for the first time, some Afro American smart people are are laying trying to lay down the lot. I, I just want to let it be. Stop in the blues. I don't think it's a perfect book, but you know, if you're in jazz and you've never read it, you should check it out. There's some profound insights in there that you're not going to get yeah. any other way. And it's you know the the thing that he does and that um, Marsalis is clearly doing. He's saying, look, it's not the pure expression of your soul. It's not some sort of innate, um, just artistic gift that is welling up you know, spontaneously, um, and it's not the pure expression of the sort of material social conditions in which black people find themselves in, right? But that, you know, it's a, that bit of sort of playing with what is there, uh, extemporizing, but also having sort of this wealth of, of history and style to draw on. Uh, it is the creation of something genuinely new that cannot be cannot be reduced to sociological analysis or fantasies of of some sort of pure artistic expression but rather um is the result of 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 work and craft and tradition uh over generations um but we shouldn't smooth the rough edges off this either in the sense that to come back to what you <laughs> Well, to come back to where Ethan started with this, uh, that this was Winton insisting on, um, you know, a, a black 
critical tradition for jazz. You know, Stanley, who was the staunch integrationist, right? Staunch integrationist, staunch opponent of black nationalism, didn't really dig white jazz musicians for the most part, <laughs> and had a hard time, I would say, with the position of um, white jazz players, in part, not because he thought like there's something lacking in the white soul. It was nothing so stupid and fascistic as that. But in part, I think, because he, you know, for two reasons. One was because he saw that a lot of the white musicians didn't necessarily come out of the uh, blues playing tradition that he associated, or the swing tradition that he associated with real jazz, but also because they were displacing the black musical tradition and the core of jazz that he wanted to preserve. I don't know if that's, if you think that's an unfair characterization, Ethan, but I don't think, I don't think it's too strong to say that there was a decided preference from Stan. I can't speak for Winton here, but from Stanley in particular, I know that Stanley thought, you know, that, that jazz was black music. I should say black American music and American music, but that there was maybe a skepticism towards the white jazz as a, let's say, an institutional position or something like that. I mean, I have so much to say right now. It's like, which, where do I start? But before we get, I'll get into the weeds on this for real for a second. It's funny how Stanley, you know, is, is de deemed conservative in certain ways, you know, like the way things turn around, you know what I mean? Because I do think both Winton and, and Stanley, they have this real belief in uh, a unified America. And that's what that, that's what that book, The Omni-Americans by Albert Murray is about. You know, there's, it's about how we're, every, every American is actually both black and white, and we should enjoy being American, you know? And that's, that was heresy to the black nationalists. And now in our current political discourse, it's somewhat, uh, you know, it's, 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 that's considered a conservative point of view again. I, what, black, what Stanley wanted was the primacy of Afro-American jazz values if you're playing jazz. He'd like plenty of white jazz musicians who, who stood by those values. In fact, there's no way not to like them because right. if you're really into jazz, there's plenty of white guys you like. But there's jazz that sounds more white than other jazz. <laughs> there's <laughs> stuff that's explicitly white. And I and I think Winton's- Like who? Of, well, I'll tell you in a second, but I would say that I'm about to do something which you know Winton doesn't do in his manifesto, which he doesn't name names. Right. He's somehow- trying to be political even though he's he failed miserably <laughs> he's never he's never managed to uh be totally smooth about hiding his totally certain opinions about everything um <laughs> at the same at the same time his manifesto i think would be would have been improved then and now if he if he would actually you know go on the record about certain things so in Albert Murray's book, um, Stomping the Blues, he takes a jab at Bix Beiderbecke. Now, Bix is the first white guy who influenced the way everybody played. And it's kind of a low blow 
it's, you know, <laughs> and that's one of the reasons people were so mad at Albert Murray at the time and still are, because for them, Bix is uh, like the untouchable poet, you know, and you can start using phrases like the great white hope and it's not wrong because some of these iconic white jazz musicians have a following that's based around all the middle-aged white guys who see themselves as, you know, they can relate to those great white hopes in the way they can't relate to the other, you know, the black jazz masters. Bix is certainly that. If anyone is that, it's Bix. And he was great, by the way. I love Bix Meidervik. You know, strike me down if I would ever go on uh, record criticizing Beiderbeck as a musician it's and incredible. everybody loved him. You know, he, it was, he was an influence on not just Lester Young, but a whole, the whole world of jazz. At the same time, if you're not big enough to smile and let Albert Murray, Murray have his little dig at, 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 at Spiderbeck, I think you're kind of in the wrong business. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's quite okay for Albert Murray to be like, yeah, you know, He's he's in the second. I think he says something. He's in the second line, not the first line of the cast. It's like it's and, you know, give it to. I'm going to give it to Al around there again. I'm not trying to criticize Bix, but that's that's a crisis point. I would say in this dialogue. And then there's someone like Bill Evans. Bill Evans, the great white jazz pianist, who uh, if if you compare him to other '50s pianists who played with Miles Davis, Red Garland, Horace Silver, and Wynton Kelly. Bill plays uh, Caucasian. There's no doubt about it. It's also totally awesome. What do you mean by he plays Caucasian? What, what he sounds what is... he 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 dials back the blues influence, mm-hmm. and he plays a lot of stuff from the French impressionists. Hmm. And I think he he plays uh, the first improvised piano solo on a jazz record that has almost nothing to do with a beat or the blues, and that's. Uh, piece piece on everybody meaning thinks. that it's just it's like just tonal it's this piece it's like a mixture of chopin and sati yeah, yeah. And he plays these he plays these abstract uh arabesques on top it's one of the greatest things ever recorded but there's very little traditional black jazz value in it hmm but, you know, one of the biggest influences on Herbie Hancock is Bill Evans. That's just the way it goes. If you, if you, you can try to be a race essentialist in jazz if you want, but you're not going to get very far because it turns out everybody that's truly great is influenced by everybody else who's truly great. And Mal Waldron did a satire record. So is that, was he that's playing right. white? And he played uh, well, Exactly. Well, yeah. one of the things that's a, a great satire record. Yeah, one of the things that's alluded to in the in this manifesto is that how all the jazz cats knew European music. Right. Right. You know, which it's it's really true. I I'm now a jazz teacher and I'm usually frustrated by how little people know classical music or European classical music. Cuz if you don't know any of that, it's awfully hard to start doing working it. You sort of, you know, know the rules then break it. That's what he's saying in the first two paragraphs of this manifesto if you've never played a chopin nocturne are you really going to sound good playing a jazz ballad well it's interesting you brought up the anecdote from the monk biography about him playing chopin but i mean i have a a willie the lion smith record where he's playing chopin 
Um, or at least I know I've heard, and I think I've heard Willie the Lion Smith playing Stravinsky too. Yeah. Um, well, it was all in the same water. I mean, if you're a piano player, I mean, it depends right. on the instrument. You know, if you're, if, okay, if you play the drums, that's a different topic. If you're a singer, that's a different topic. Mm, but yeah. if you're a piano player, there's only a few that have avoided any European influence, you know. Who are the ones There's, who um, avoided any European influence? I wonder what well, that, like the sound you know, of. Two that come to mind, they still, I'm sure they would say that there's some, but uh, the great Randy Weston and the great Horace Parlin come to mind as people that did it. Did it. There's something about what they do. It's, uh, and they're two of my favorites. I'm not trying to put them down, but I would just say in the abstract, I, can, I feel like, yeah, that wasn't part of wherever they're coming from. They're actually really trying to put the piano more all the way in Africa. But there were no pianos in Africa. So the minute you play this incredibly European instrument, the piano, you're sort of dealing with that lineage. Mm. Hmm. So in the, um, in the manifesto, um, after he sort of you know, sort of disentangles what he thinks jazz is from these sort of mythologies about where it comes from, right? And for him, it's coming from tradition. He then goes on to attack sort of innovation in the form that he thinks is straying too far from the roots, right? So he says, while faced with this problem, musicians are also faced with the constant clamor for something new. How can something new and substantial not eccentric and fraudulent, be developed when the meaning of what's old is not known? Could we have gotten to the moon without even understanding Newtonian physics, right? Um, yeah, Philip. Uh, so now he's essentially dealing with the avant-garde, which that was always right. the critics' darlings. So his, in his, mm -hmm. you know, there's just two aspects of mission creep. I, I'm totally down with the essentially defining jazz because just as I can play some Bach on the piano, and we all know what it is. It's like, okay, we all, we all know what that is. There's some rules, we can learn it and forget about it. You know, something about whatever Stanley and Winton were saying at that time was like, there's rules to jazz. That's, I'm totally down with, I'm still down with that. I'll talk more about that maybe in a moment, but I would say, on one on one hand, he's he's worried about funk and hip hop, and like that yeah. ain't jazz. And then he's worried about the avant garde, and that ain't jazz. And that that's those are two different things because they have such a different footprint. I would say, and with funk and hip hop, it's popular, way more popular than jazz. There's no comparison. And uh, with the with the avant-garde music, it's totally not popular. It's barely in the public discourse, except that it's what the critics like. Right. So it has this incredibly outsized representation in the critical discourse, but uh, you know it, it has a very small following. And th then when you get to like the avant-garde, I mean, it's, it's almost like there's the white guys and the black guys, and. I think the worst part of the jazz wars with Stanley and Winton was that um, a generation of really great jazz musicians suddenly had less gigs. Hmm. I'm sure they didn't intend it, but 
you know, Stanley was a big personality, had these big loves. He, he had this big love of David Murray in the 70s. And his old, his friend James Newton and I think they're both still around and they would still praise Stanley I've talked to them both about Stanley recently but uh, the record shows that he sort of dropped them like a hot potato and supported Winton when Winton was the coming thing and what Murray and Newton and a whole bunch of other great players from that scene Arthur Blythe uh There's this, this quartet that played a bit, Arthur Blythe's, Blythe um, with Stanley Cowell, Fred Hopkins, and Steve McCall. And they actually made an album called In the Tradition for Columbia <laughs> Records, right before Winton did all that. And what, what those guys are doing on In the Tradition, it's they're playing the tradition, but it's in a really kind of relaxed and free-form way. And it's beautiful. In some ways, it's that's the true tradition, I would say, as compared to some of the things Winton got up, got up to later when he really wanted to define it. But the Arthur Blythe tradition, in the tradition band, yeah. that was suddenly passe and not in the critical discussion in the same way as soon as Winton got in there with the Young Lions and the, and the coup happened with, with Stanley you know, writing the manifestos. You know, this is one of these things that, like, I'm sympathetic to the, the desire to say, look, you have to know the tradition, right? Like you need to be, you know, like art emerges out of a tradition, understanding the, the, the idiom, but like there's a degree of, uh, of gatekeeping of, you know, if you think of like what a tradition is, there's, there's um, Derek Walcott when he's talking about tradition in the muse of history, which we've also talked about here. He sort of, um, he's criticizing uh, he's criticizing people who are sort of too immured in the past. He says, they believe in the responsibility of tradition, but what they are in awe of is not tradition, which is alert, alive, simultaneous, but history, right? Um, and so it's this sort of like, on the one hand, he, he wants to kind of reject like, um, just sort of no novelty, right? Uh, originality for its own sake. Uh, which he calls the false basis of innovation, but at the same time, like either a tradition is sort of open and continually changing and sort of in conversation with itself, but in unexpected ways, or it's a museum piece. Uh, it, this is sort of where the conversation always goes. And right. I am, Philip, I'm in the side of it's got to be new every day. I'm mm -hmm. a practitioner. You know, um, I've got this Blue Note record coming out with Larry Grenadier and Jack DeJanet, and it, it does not espouse Wynton Marcellus val values. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, How so? What's the, what's the record called, by the way? It's, well, it's called Every Note is True, and I, like whatever is traditional jazz harmony is, um, like I, I give that a noble beating.
don't want to talk about my own stuff too much. But no, I no, you should talk about your. You own should stuff. because I want to see how you're how you're doing it. Also, like you're when you were with the Bad Plus, right? Like you guys did a Radiohead cover, and um, and I mean, and you're the Buck Powell record. I mean, how do you negotiate this? How do you, as somebody who's saying you see the value in what Winton is espousing, but you you need to pursue newness. Like, how do you negotiate that? Well, I think all my favorite jazz, it does it interface with present day. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it, it, it's helpful to remember that, um, like, one of the classic Miles Davis albums is Round About Midnight from, I think, 56, maybe 57. And uh, on that, he's playing a a Cole Porter tune called All of You. And it feels like the Cole Porter music is already old, like so old, and Miles is playing this, you know, modern jazz version. But All of You was written in 1954. So it's literally at most two years old when he's making this famous version with John Coltrane. Then when Coltrane's quartet got his thing together for real, the first record with McCoy Tyner and Elvin Jones, his hit was My Favorite Things. Yeah, I was going to bring that up too. Which is, it was so new that there was no movie of The Sound of Music yet. It was only on Broadway. Oh, no kidding. That's how fresh My Favorite Things was. You know, sometimes I think it's not about present day. Also, it's about what you grew up with, like what your heritage is. Monk has a side to his thing that's like an old parlor piano playing the tunes and he's supersonic futuristic and ultra advanced but there's also this monk has this thing where it's like whatever the teen and when he's a teenager the parlor piano songs he's always going to play those he'd be in on stage in europe in front of three thousand people and play a honky-tonk rendition of just a gigolo yeah you know what i want to ask you one of the because you know marcel sort of famously doesn't like um, uh, rap for a variety of reasons, right? But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, especially of like some of the great East Coast jazz, like rappers emerge from jazz tradition. You know, Nas's father uh, was a jazz musician. Biggie trained with a jazz musician who talked about like, talking about how you could sort of incorporate some of the innovations in terms of jazz drumming into what you could do with Biggie's rapping, right? Um, and the rhythms that he was creating uh, with rap. And is that, you know, you know, is that not part of the tradition? It's not jazz, right? It's obviously something very different, but. Well, what I think almost anyone could agree on, and maybe even Winton and Stanley, is when you're listening to a great, you know, hip hop artist in their flow and they're improvising, it's got this electricity. Yeah. That's like um, a classic jazz solo. And that's one of the beautiful things about anytime you're improvising is, you know, you're in the moment and it transcends, it tra- transcends something you've practiced and goes into something that is only there in this moment. You know, comedy is that way too. You know, we've all been there in 
what, 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 a comic is you actually know that it's not they've left the material they rehearsed yeah. and they're rolling with the, the thing and it just lands and you can't you just can't help yourself you're laughing so hard same thing with hip-hop you know uh black thought gets going and it just starts tumbling and the the, the sky's open and then it's a flow that's just undeniable you know Coltrane played those long solos because he was trying to get that to happen on every solo. He wanted to be in that space. He wanted to be such a master of his material, but then want to, you know, reach the sky with the spontaneous creation. You know, jazz, jazz and hip hop are intimately aligned that way. And um, yeah, whatever black aesthetic is, I can't tell you what it is, but I, I sort of know it when I see it. And it's definitely a lot of, correlations also i same thing with funk you know i was watching a was watching a commodore's video you know brick house from the 70s and the way they looked and the way they were sounding the beat the whole thing i mean that's really the jazz tradition some of that is never in the history books that's starting to change but um Here's, I'm going to do some mission creep of my own right now. I'm going to get off topic. But all the, all the jazz history b- books I grew up with, none of them ever mentioned the organ trio, organ, mm-hmm. guitar, and drums. But that was more or less invented by Jimmy Smith in the 50s. And then all the major cities in America in the black communities had their organ rooms up until about 1980. And it was the real deal jazz. It wasn't just the blues. It was also jazz standards. And the famous jazz compositions played at a really high level, swinging, tight, super intellectual, but also just for the locals kind of jazz. And people who went on to have national careers as avatars of the music began if they were lucky with some apprentice work with the organ trio. And this is my thing. It isn't Winton's thing, but I sort of think what Winton is bemoaning is the, is the lack of attention that something like the organ trio tradition got versus the amount of attention the art ensemble of Chicago got, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I love the art ensemble of Chicago. I mean, I love the art ensemble of Chicago. I'm not trying to take down, the art ensemble of Chicago here, but I, I'm aware that there's this catastrophic silence in terms of whatever working class black people were getting up to in the trenches with their jazz music when compared to, um, you know, the people playing the avant-garde styles like the art ensemble of Chicago. I'm talking about the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, I, I bring up um, Cedar Walton, who... If you're a, like a New York jazz insider, you will give it up for Cedar. You know he was the best. But he never had a re- profile about him in a, in a paper here. What did he, he played, play? With? He played piano. He passed a few years ago. He, he was the real sort of standard bearer of impeccable bebop with kind of like a friendly Ama Jamal tinge in there. And... It's, it's really great to see some of these videos that are online now of like these masters in playing at the peak of their powers, like in Europe. And so there's Clifford Jordan and 
Cedar Walton and Billy Higgins, Sam Jones, they're playing in Europe. It's a great concert, early 70s. And then the white critics talk to them. And they just want to talk to him. They want to talk to Cedar Walton and Clifford Jordan about Ornette Coleman, Albert Eiler, the Art Ensemble Chicago, about the avant-garde musicians. And they're trying to somehow... It's almost like what Cedar Walton and Billy Higgins is playing isn't valid compared to uh, what's really happening with the f music that's in the f forefront of innovation. Mm. And it's essentially a tragedy because you've got a chance to ask Cedar Walton and Billy Higgins some serious questions. And instead, you're blowing it by putting them on the spot to talk about these other guys that they don't know, they probably don't like, but they're not going to say they don't like them. It's just a really awkward moment. But I would say that's typical of something Winton was trying to rectify in back then when he published that manifesto. He and Stanley both. One of the few pieces I ever saw written about Cedar Walton in a New York profile was in, at the Village Voice. Stanley wrote it talking about a trio with Ron Carter and Billy Higgins and if you knew, you knew, but a lot of people didn't know. And that's part of the battle of those jazz wars. It's, it's easy to sort of say, well, they just don't like innovation, but they're, they're also trying to stand for something that's really, really important. You know? yeah. and, I, and I would, get, I would rather have them give them the chance to, for them to impart that wisdom before getting upset about it. I think if you take a step back and you look at what that conflict is that you just described. We focused initially on the way in which it's in part about preserving like the primacy of the black element in jazz, but it's also a battle between artist and critic. And the critic is a new creature, a 20th century creature. And when I was thinking about this Marsalis essay, what came to mind, you know, I started off thinking about the kind of in my, you know, I, I, there's it's like a one track hamster wheel in my head. And I'm just like, OK, Crouch, Murray, Malraux, some familiar stuff. But at some point what I realized is oh, I know what this is resonating with. And it's with thoughts I've had about Dadaism. And Phil and I did a previous installment of Manifesto on Dadaism, which we actually paired with the Public Enemy record. Um, but my objection to Dadaism is not that there are no forms of, you know, nominally Dadaist art that are interesting and vital and expressive of, of the human condition. My issue with it is that once you accept Duchamp's urinal, there's no going back. And ultimately, what you've done in this seemingly liberatory act is to hand all power to the critic. And so when Crouch and Marsalis talk about the rules and they appear to be defending this kind of stodginess, to me what gets missed here or what gets actually obscenely misrepresented is that they're on the side of democracy. And they're on the side of democracy in the sense that... The and on the side of the musicians... Right. Yeah, the yeah. democratic, right, precisely, the musicians, which is the democratic it's, aspect. If it's, you can it's, play, not, it's not just the masses. If you can get in. Yeah. Yeah, but if you can play, if you can get in, if you can work within these, work within the system, and if you have talent, that expresses itself rather than there is a critical establishment 
that decides what counts as avant-garde, what counts as progressive, what counts as somehow aligned with whatever the political currents of the day are, whatever ideological fetishes and preoccupations the critics are interested in that moment, that's undemocratic. The rule-bound thing is the democratic thing. Well, this is a perfect segue for just a little a little bit more mission creep here uh, for this uh, podcast, uh, the topic of Charles Williford, because you mentioned that you like Williford and that I guess I you've love written Williford. about Williford. One of his greatest books is uh, The Burnt Orange Heresy, which is, I mean, I sort of don't want to give away the whole book. So weird. It's so weird. And, and Willif- all Williford's books are weird, and that's probably the weirdest of them. But it's about but modern the, art. Can we say that? It, but it, yeah, it's, it's, but the thing is, it's about how a critic has the ultimate power. Right. Exactly what you're saying about you turn power over to the critic. And then, you know, it, you can make this conceptual art that you can write a whole book about the conceptual art, you know. But um, in jazz, there are conceptual arts artists. Um, one of them, I mentioned the Art Ensemble of Chicago. They have conceptual pieces. I love them. Um, Anthony Braxton is another great master of the genre. He has one piece for, I think, 200 tubas outside. And the 200 tubas play together. I don't know exactly what it sounds like. I don't even need to hear it. I'm glad it exists. There's another piece Braxton wrote was for different um, different symphony orchestras on different planets playing at the same time. I guess I won't get to hear that anytime soon either. But I'm, I'm not against Mr. Braxton, nor am I... Uh, I love it. I mean, I love to talk about that stuff. I have a punk rock side to me that likes conceptual art. At the same time, again, whatever Cedar Walton is, whatever Houston Person is, whatever the great organ trios are, those just like the incredible swinging, bluesy, but also intellectual black jazz musicians that were around in the 60s into the 70s and the 80s, they were nowhere in the critical conversation compared to Braxton or the art ensemble. And that's an imbalance. And I guess you could say it's a undemocratic imbalance. That's right. You, there's a, there's a bit uh, Schleiermacher from Schleiermacher's book on religion, defense of religion against its cultured despisers. Uh, is the great is it 19th century German theologian. And he says, um, Were I to compare religion in this respect with anything, it would be with music, which indeed is otherwise closely connected with. Music is one great whole. It is a special, a self-contained revelation of the world. Yet the music of each people is a whole by itself, which again is divided into different characteristic forms till we come to the genius and style of the individual. Each actual instance of this inner revelation in the individual contains all these unities. Yet while nothing is possible for a musician except in and through the unity of the music of his people and the unity of music generally, he presents it in the charm of sound with all the pleasure and joyousness of boundless caprice according as his life stirs within him and the world influences him. And then he goes on to compare that to how religion functions. Yeah, so the the point Schleiermacher is making is he's not effacing the individual and individual talent. It's, It's extremely important, but it only develops that power through its connection to those broader unities, right? And the sort of like 
family groups um, that provide the kind of um, idiom and sort of system of meaning within within which the you know the individual is working, um, and that sort of I mean that to me seems related to and you know he compares it directly to religion, but it's it's it seems related to this insistence that um, that Marsalis has on on learning the tradition and being connected in that very sort of organic way, but also through hard effort and work um, that is accessible to anybody who puts that in to some degree. Um, to the well, kind I have, of life this leads, what it is. Yeah. This leads straight into a, a, another issue that he doesn't make explicit, but I perceive as a fundamental motivation or factor in Winton's manifesto is jazz education. Because whatever we like about the classic jazz records, referencing a church and local values, uh, it's perfect because jazz did come out of of a community. Yeah. You know, and all of a sudden with jazz education, you didn't need to be in one of those communities. You could just buy a method book and try to start, start to play jazz. Or you could just go to college and get a degree in jazz and now you're a jazz musician. And the, in, in my opinion, I've never had any problem with any great white jazz player. Of course, I'm a white jazz player myself. <clears throat> but you can look at all that, you know, someone like Charlie Hayden, in, in my opinion, it's, it's beautiful because he's got, he sounds like a, he's from the Ozarks. And he's a, he's a cracker. You know, he's a genuine hick. And that's something in his bass playing that I think is very, very beautiful. And... Anybody I like of any color and any kind of music, I do think that's something of your background needs to be present. You can't deny your background. But in terms of it's different, the individual versus the institution. And then there's the, the institution of jazz education, which, which starts in the late 50s with uh, Stan Kenton, which was a really Caucasian organization, and North Texas State, that was the first like big jazz school and the person there uh leon breeden who started who there's in texas there's a leon breeden day that's how famous he is still down there and he was not a practitioner he didn't ever play with anybody great in fact i read an interview where he talks about well there's not there's no black people in this band because black people can't read <laughs> He actually says that the noble savage trope. What what just, year is this? Like around what time? Uh, well, the North Texas State is uh, late fifties, mm. and so that leads into a decade of that stuff into Berkeley College of Music and and Gary Burton, a great musician. But also, there's a weird sort of white supremacy aspect to all of this, and of course, all the so many of the people who bought the books and went to the schools were white and the, the whole thing became this um, there were there were very few black gatekeepers who were uh, in, a, in a position to stop all that from happening it just sort of happened and then you wake up 20 years later and all of a sudden the music has a uh, taking on a really strange cast. It's sort of like, you know, a zillion amateurs were invited to a party that used to be only uh, the 
close members of the congregation were allowed to part- participate. Yeah. So uh, I perceive that in the background of the manifesto and whatever Stanley wrote too. Is this like, uh, you know, and that, that goes back to also Tootie Heath with me saying, oh, I never read an article in any of those magazines because the, the magazines and the publications and the schools became like the military industrial complex of jazz. And the, there was hardly anybody who had actually played any swinging jazz on a good gig with other practitioners in, involved in any of that. And I think it's, in a way it's the worst thing that ever happened to jazz in the history was that uh, gradual takeover. Um, at this point, jazz education is certainly the number one economic driver in our industry, not gigs, not the, certainly not record sales, that's over, the, but the actual the education aspect of it. You're uh, saying that's how musicians, that's the number one source of revenue for jazz absolutely. musicians. Absolutely. That's fascinating. So it is really military industrial complex. Absolutely. That, yeah. You know, writers. When did that happen? Would you say like what around what decade did that happen? Well, Gary Burton and Berkeley, that was a thing for sure in the early 70s. But when did it become primary, though, where it wasn't about gigging? You know, people might dispute me even saying that's primary now. Maybe this is a little Hmm. bit of my position on the thing. But uh, I. It feels like jazz left the public discourse around the time, you know, black people really got into Motown and then future forms of, of black music. So whatever, something like 1970, something like that. Hmm. So, and, you know, education has been very important for Winton too. And he's, to his credit, I mean, for, to me, one of the best things about Winton is that he is, he lo- he's loved to be a teacher and he's loved to be uh, telling people like the names Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, just like mm-hmm. Stanley. And one of the things that happened in the in the ferment of the late 60s is Louis Armstrong got branded as an Uncle Tom, a variant of the, of the noble savage trope, right? And Stanley and Winton together sort of were a two, two-pronged attack saying, no, Louis Armstrong's really great. He's not an Uncle Tom. He's for anybody. And I think he's, I think they made a difference in... I mean, now I'm just going to say some stuff. I don't know if it's true, but but you know, I feel like uh, black educators and thinkers can, you know, are more comfortable talking about Louis Armstrong as a resource than they were at the height of the um, Uncle Tom discourse of the late '60s and early hmm. '70s. Hmm. You know, and so, there. Oh, go, go ahead. Well, I was just to say so. We should probably start to move on to the art um, at at some point um, and sort of how this cashes out in terms of the actual, you know, the music that, that, that Marsalis is making. But uh, I didn't want to cut you off. Oh, no, well, no, uh, fair enough. Uh, but I would just say that in terms of education, while it was once all the high school bands played 
Stan Kenton and um, North Texas State and Gary Burton stuff, they now play Ellington. And that's partly because of Jazz at Lincoln Center's essentially mm. Ellington program, which is free and whatever. The idea of a black aesthetic in jazz, you know, it perme permeates the the military industrial complex at a, at a young age, I think, thanks to Winton. Like they won, they won that part of their fight was they Listen, got Ellington and full and disclosure. Yeah. The original opening for this podcast included a, a brief audio clip of Duke Ellington talking about Afro-Eurasian eclipse, which I knew about from Stanley. And as, like, this is stuff that I was introduced to when I was 16 or something and has informed my entire life. And the current intro to this podcast is Such Sweet Thunder, which is, to me, the most manifesto-ish. One of, like, if you look at, like, all of Shakespeare, The Tempest is the most manifesto-ish in its way. And such sweet thunder is a kind of psychological manifesto, a musical psychological manifesto of sorts. So I just bring it up to say that what you're describing, Ethan, the kind of victory of that. Now, maybe I'm exceedingly small stakes to count <laughs> as like the spoils. But insofar as we count, uh, there's some direct connection here. And I think I know what you mean about Louis Armstrong, too, about the that kind of like grinning Satchmo Uncle Tom trope no longer having the purchase it had even when I was a teenager say I mean even in the last 20 years it seems to have lost some of that but let's um let's get yes, to the well, that's, music that's itself. wonderful it's great to hear yeah. and I mean I they deserve those victories because they're right yeah. yeah on this I concede them everything I think they're oh, totally I mean, right about all of that you can't listen to I mean, also like if they were, I mean, like, was John Coltrane wrong when he recorded with Duke Ellington? I mean, th these sorts of divisions never really made sense in that, like, you like Monk, but you don't like Ellington. You like Coltrane, but, you you know, like, th then you're just cutting off the, the kind of, you're making an arbitrary distinction between what counts as progressive and avant-garde and, and what's um, stodgy and, and regressive. Um Okay, now we get to J Mood, which is this 1985 record, and I had not listened to it before. I've heard a bunch Neither of Marcel's stuff, but this was the first time I had heard this. Out of everything, why this record? It's just that I like it a lot. Um, I feel like if I was in a room of Winton haters, you know, I'd put on this one you know and just see what they'd say what you know? track would you put on from this I'd one put on the first track it's hmm. a minor blues see one of the things you mentioned uh black codes earlier is your favorite album and I, I love that album too winton was not fully in charge of the aesthetic of these bands yeah he's talking a manifesto but he can't tell the cats in his band to do that exactly. Mm. And there's a, there's tensions in the music, especially with Jeff Watts on drums. And Jeff Watts is someone who played a lot of funk and fusion. 
who loved the fusion records, loved the funk records, <laughs> was a real sort of like, uh, to this day, he probably has more chops in a Billy Cobham sense than probably any other living drummer. And it, when Jeff Watts stopped playing with Winton, it was a, it was when the music became the manifesto that we're reading about. That's a, another record or two after this. There's a, one or two more records with Jeff Watts, and then the very great Herlin Riley, who's an incredible drummer. I'm not trying to dismiss Mr. Riley, but when he got in there with Winton and the, there's a famous album, Majesty of the Blues, which has a spoken manifesto written by Crouch on it. Uh, it he's now firmly into, he's saying it and he's playing it, a very specific description of what jazz is. But in J-Mood, it's still got... Um, it's got people who play the way they play. It's the it's one of the I think it's the first album of Marcus Roberts who's playing a lot of um, atmospheric piano. There's a, mm. people will be surprised when I say this. I hope, but to me, there's a side of this that sounds like an ECM record from the '70s. Mm. These sort of modal harmonies and the way it's recorded. Now, it, by some lights, that's a real Caucasian perspective, but I just love ECM records too. But Whatever, whatever they're thinking about in the room that day, the light and shade of the music is informed only by the music's own demands. You know, because hmm. I don't think too much talk helps. If you're really too a much composer, talk in the sense of uh, too much commentary on top of the composition well, and the arrangement and. To, to explain what you're going to do. Beethoven's right. like, well, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do in this symphony. Not like right. that. <laughs> you know, um, I've written a, almost two million words about jazz, but hardly any of it's about my, whatever I do myself because I don't want to, I don't want to have to live up or be constrained by stuff I said about it. Yeah, you know, I, I feel that with um, with writing like, when I'm working on a book, so some people don't like to talk about what they're working on. I'm perfectly happy to talk about, you know, fiction writing. Um, but whenever I'm talking about what I'm working on, I always feel like I'm, um, like I'm giving the ad copy, you know, and it is somewhat just kind of disconnected from the actual work where there's a kind of anarchism at loose. Exactly. Anarchism is the perfect word. Mm -hmm. And And at the same time, like, you know, I'm very interested in setting up structures right <laughs> um that will kind of contain what i'm doing um uh in a particular direction but then sort of within that you, you know the work kind of pushes against it I, I tend to find that interesting i mean one of the the interesting things that you said about this album is and you know it's very different from like you know i, I sit down and i write right and it's just me uh and then you know i get feedback from people but it's not like a jazz album where you can have, you know, players with who would intellectualize what they're doing in very different ways, um, who are creating a unified piece of art together in the moment uh, that incorporates those sort of, you know, theoretically, you know, contrasting styles and ideas. Um, that's, you know, one of the sort of amazing things about it. Uh, yeah, it, 
I'm sure you can relate to this, both of you, is you don't always know where the ideas come from, but it's probably come from something. Yeah. Like there aren't, there are probably no new ideas. It's really everything is just a combination of previous things. And at some point, Winton in his manifestos, he, he sort of describes everything he thinks is jazz. And I, I mean, I go along with it basically, but then, you know, he, he, his bands play that opinion and it's almost like if it wasn't done, be, if it wasn't done before like this, we, we won't play it. And you feel like that's that true of this record, though? You feel No, this... not this one. This is why okay. I like this one because I was going to say, I don't feel like this no, is... No, no, a... This is still okay. got Jeff Watts there. That's the key yeah. figure for me, okay, Jeff Watts. Okay. But I everybody's great. Robert Turtz yeah. is great. I, I think both Marcus Roberts and Robert... Marcus Roberts and Robert Hurst, they're both so great. I think this is, this is their first record. They're throwing it out there. Youthful genius. It's just got and there's a progression in this record. Like, the first track... J mood which is very beautiful and has a kind of that has to me like wonderful atmospherics on it mm-hmm. and uh this great uh great harmonic stuff but then I f- i'm trying to remember is the next track the insane asylum one? all right uh, i think three is, a, is three insane, is insane asylum as- which is in its way quite avant-garde well it yeah, I, I don't know any way in which that isn't quite avant-garde. You know, I mean, well, if, if you want to compare it to Anthony Braxton and 2,200 tubas on the street, it's not. But that's a piece by Donald yeah. Brown. That's yeah. another great pianist. When at that time was still part of a, a community of the best and the brightest of a certain scene. Yeah. He's playing one of his friend's pieces. And it's oh, he didn't write that. Okay. Yeah, that, and it... Um, he wrote most of the album. I mean, he's a great composer, yeah. but that's a Donald Brown piece, and it has a going for broke avant energy. You know that I I still relate to. The first time I heard it, I loved it, and I still love it all these years. I bought it when it was on vinyl. I was a teenager. I bought it. I think it was I was part of the Columbia Records deal. It just came in. Oh wow! Well, yeah. You know, I got the LP, and I've listened to it ever since, and I've always found it satisfying. Yeah, I mean, look, the danger, obviously, even for somebody who subscribes to the kind of aesthetic or even um, let's just call it aesthetic principles, whatever beyond aesthetics is at stake, uh, people can fill in for themselves. But you could believe in all of that and still recognize that if you internalize it too deeply, it, it will kill creativity. I mean, it's... It, any anything that's too uh, dogmatic is going to make it not even in the construction itself, but it'll also just inhibit new ideas. You know, you, when you when you want to yeah. have an idea that like comes from nowhere in a sense, you have to give yourself the opportunity to really like be loose enough and free enough to have that happen and if you're overly concerned with being pious and righteous to whatever tradition that's going to be next to impossible so there's a balance here and you know this record it feels to me you know doesn't it's not stifled it feels this feels pretty open to me you know there's there's something that and i'm going to relate this to practice of writing because this is what i know i don't you know my only experience making music is singing to my children and, and only a, you know, three-year-old would think it was good. Um, 
But when I'm doing, you know, I, I write books that require a decent amount of research, right? And when I'm doing research, I want to be deeply versed in the information, uh, in the tradition that I'm writing in. I want to have like a rich array of things. Um, but the reason that I want that rich array is specifically so that I can feel confident deviating. Um, right. Um, where I'm not just sort of writing in the dark where I know the context that I'm writing into, but, um, but because I feel sort of a certain amount of, of, uh, of familiarity and mastery with that tradition, um, and with the information at my disposal, it sort of frees me to be open to, to that anarchy. Perfectly stated. You know, I, I feel like I could sum up a few things here that I've been trying to address, uh, sort of give like the con and the pro on this from my real world experience in terms of the way the manifesto and the jazz wars have resonated for me. Mm -hmm. um, if that if that suits. Please. Okay. So on the, on the con side, I think Winton's disavowal of funk and hip hop and the avant-garde Again, I, th I feel like that was mission creep. He shouldn't have started on that, and he's doubled down on it ever since. And the idea of the of limitless possibility, he sort of rejected. And uh, you know, I, there's no band I would rather see at this moment in jazz than Jason Moran and the Bandwagon, and that's Taurus Mateen and Nashit Waits. And it's in my opinion, it's very jazz. It's totally the jazz edition. I mean, there's no more, nothing more jazz than that, if you want to say it that way. There's swing in the blues. But it also has serious avant-garde aspects. But also, it seriously engages with hip-hop. They don't play hip-hop beats. There's no mm -hmm. uh, spontaneous flows on the microphone from Jason. At the same time, they grew up with hip-hop. And it's in their music as some kind of obscure binding element. And that there's magic there that Witten's music is always top notch objectively, but something about him, he was like, no, it's just going to be this thing. And he, he's so far what I have heard since the days Jeff Watts left, none of it has gotten to that space. The bandwagon gets to every night that they just let it all in. They're not worried about it. Oh, I thought it, I play it. Anarchy is a good word, you know. So that's the con. I think that's the problem with the, with the manifesto. But the positive side is I do think it's helpful to have an actual definition of jazz. When I first came to town, there was a popular festival, What is Jazz? And it's sort of like everything in the world happens there. And one of the things he says in the, in the manifesto, he's like, I saw only two out of 10 groups at European jazz festivals actually play jazz. And I think he's right that people like to say they play jazz for aesthetic, like you get to say it, it makes your thing higher. Like you get yeah, to- Yeah, sounds fancy. Yeah, you get, the, you get the props for being a jazz musician and playing at a jazz festival and you don't need to know how to play jazz. Yeah. And I think Winton's right to have fought against that. And um, I'll just close with this, this, thought, this thought experiment. 
um, that I use while teaching because I, I teach kids at New England Conservatory and other places and everybody's young and a bit of a punk rocker and they all want to be avant-garde kind of players. And somehow they're all still playing standards though. They're playing uh, songs like All the Things You Are, you know, All of Me, In a Sentimental Mood, tunes that you know pretty much if you know jazz you've heard these pieces. And they'll play it in a kind of abstract, not very swinging way, you know, because they're looking inside themselves for something new. Mm -hmm. And they'll play it and I'll say, well, I have a thought experiment for you. Name me two non-musicians who are famous from the world of politics and cinema who are not known as jazz fans. Name a man and a woman. Often it comes up Michelle Obama and Quentin Tarantino. All right. And I say, okay, you're all at an event. You're the piano player hired to be at this event, and they're the guest speakers, and you're accompanying some singer, but three of you are backstage. There's no cell phone service. You've got half an hour to kill, and you've got to somehow have a conversation. But there's an upright piano there. And Obama says to you, oh, you're the piano player. And you say, yeah, I'm, a, I'm the jazz pianist, the hired for the event. And Tarantino says, oh, Michelle, I know you're a jazz fan. What's your favorite jazz song? And Michelle Obama says to you, oh, I love all the things you are. What are you going to play for her at that moment? Are you going to play for her a sort of abstract, exceptionally personal, weird version of all things you are that is legible only to fellow New England conservatory students? Or are you going to play her a nice two-fisted, rocking, sort of stridey, swinging version with the melody really clear? The answer I hope you're going to give is that you're going to play it straight for Michelle Obama. And Quentin Tarantino is going to look at her and say, man, the kid can really play. Because I do believe jazz is still, in some slight way, a binding ingredient in American society that just basic jazz is sort of like baseball and uh, apple pie and whatever else Ken Burns does a special on. You know what I mean? And Winton has really helped, I think, enforce just some basic, oh yeah, this is what some jazz is. Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, a stride piano version of an old standard that you can play for someone you want to impress who isn't a a jazz diehard and just be like able to hang. You can get to the next two minutes of your life doing that. Sometimes I use Winton himself in the thought experiment. You're on a cruise ship with a lot of famous people. Winton is there. There's no other musicians. You're the piano player and the president of France wants to hear something. And Winton says, oh man, I don't know if you can play, but can we play a blues for the president? Can you do that? Can you just get through five minutes of playing a blues with Wynton Marcellus for France? And I think that's relevant. I like that. I personally want to be able to do that. I want to be able to please Michelle Obama with a clear standard and accompany Wynton in the blues and not have to sweat about it. Like, I can just do it. Right. And, and so that baseline of what jazz is and what it isn't, I do believe that, and I, I would rather you know, my students or anyone else who I actually influence 
buy into that and be like, okay, yeah, I, I hold my hand up. I'm a jazz musician. I'm playing at a jazz festival. I know what the real jazz is. I can do it. If I'm doing something else, it's not because I don't know what the real shit is. Right. Man, I, I don't think we're going to find a better way to end this than that. So, Ethan, would you, can I put you on the spot and ask yeah. if you would play us out with something? Uh, sure. How about a blues for the, for the president of France? How's that? Yeah, let's do it. God bless. Merry Christmas. point of view it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom i've given our objector his fair share of program time when these men talk i never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius <laughs>